The Biden administration recently declared a new approach to federal regulation. It said would modernize and streamline it. The new framework has drawn opposition from business. For one point of view, we turn to the vice president of environment and regulatory affairs at the Chamber of Commerce, Chad Whiteman. Mr. Whiteman, good to have you on. Great. Thanks to be here. Now, this does a lot of things, including, you know, electronic handling of bots and this kind of thing, which probably are useful updates. But I'm guessing the big change that has industry worried is the raising of the threshold of the size of regulational cost that sparks the cost-benefit analysis. That's a big part of it and a, a good point to raise. Certainly, when regulations are scrutinized, by agencies looking closely at costs and benefits, it helps with better decision-making. It helps with better regulatory durability. And we're afraid that this moves in the other direction. Tell me more what the mechanism is by which that would happen. Well, there is a new executive order that would apply to statutory agencies, the big agencies. Many of them issue a lot of regulations each year. And when they decide what type of analysis and resources to put into the regulatory development process, they'll be looking at the costs. And if the costs now are the low end of the, uh, the requirement to do this analysis is being taken away. So uh, not even the low end, but costs between 100 million and 200 million per year is this new category that doesn't require this extra scrutiny from agencies through cost-benefit analysis. Right. And a lot of rules fall into that category. That's right. And not just a lot of rules, but once you start getting up around $100 million per year in costs or even benefits, those rulemakings are not just regional or local, have local impacts, but they can have impacts across the economy. Sure. And one of the justifications was to streamline this whole thing for federal agencies. But would you say that the streamlining for the agencies comes at the expense of the regulated entities? Well, that's a really good point. And one of our other concerns is the centralized regulatory review process provides the ability for an administration to moderate the regulatory agenda. And we think that this really puts the gas pedal on regulatory proposals without looking cumulatively across the government at what an accelerated aggressive regulatory agenda could have impacts on the economy and businesses. Which agencies do you expect would be the most active under this new regime if it comes to be? I'm thinking probably EPA would be one, maybe transportation? Certainly EPA is one of the top regulatory agencies with looking at climate change as being one of the administration's top priorities. They have a whole suite of regulatory proposals there. Other agencies, uh, HHS, Health and Human Services, DOT, of course, with all of the funding going out through IAJA and others, if there are uh, regulations associated with that, there will be a whole breadth of different regulations all across the economy that fall under this new executive order. We're speaking with Chad Whiteman. He's vice president of environment and regulatory affairs at the Chamber of Commerce. Industry commenting, you know, has been part of the rulemaking process. And one of the things they're trying to eliminate is just this endless, you know, repetitive bot generated commenting or sometimes they get millions of comments that are identical and they want to try to figure out a way to stabilize that or neutralize that. Will that have any effect, do you think, also on this? It might. Uh, certainly, there are advocacy campaigns on significant regulatory policy. 
and regulation shouldn't really be a popularity contest. They should be based on sound analysis and policy judgments. And certainly we think that costs and benefits are a very helpful tool in informing regulatory policy. So we hope that stakeholders who are impacted will continue to have the ability to engage agencies as they develop their regulations. Because industry in the last few years has been pretty contrite when it comes to whatever the latest agenda item is coming out of administrations. Many years ago, I remember industry would stand up on its hind legs if they didn't like something coming, say the car industry or the appliance industry. But now you don't hear much. I mean, you don't hear Whirlpool or, you know, Tapan saying, what do you mean by trying to get rid of gas stoves or the car industry? All the executives there never believed much in electrification. Now, not one of them talks about anything but electrification. Certainly, there's some challenges here for companies. I think looking at the changes in these regulations, if it's going to accelerate the regulatory agenda of the administration, if it's going to put its thumb on the scale of benefits and minimizing the consideration of direct costs to industry, I think the response that folks will be giving will probably be a stronger response going forward because it's shifting the balance and moving in a direction that could make these regulations much more stringent and much more difficult for compliance. Yeah, the emphasis on benefits, you do hear this more and more nowadays, the kind of expression, well, even if it only saves one life, it's worth it. But if it costs a billion dollars and 100 million people will be affected and only one will die, I mean, under classic cost-benefit analysis, it may sound hard-hearted, but that is something that you go for the cost side and not the benefit side. Certainly, regulatory cost-benefit analysis calls for weighing costs against benefits. And even the longstanding executive orders that have been in place for some time direct agencies to consider that in the decision-making. One of the concerns we have with the policy is it, it seems to be pushing that analytic approach aside and favoring more subjective judgments, which can lead to decisions that may not be durable, may not be even feasible to implement. And are you concerned about what type of financial and investment and disclosure regulations could come from, say, the SEC, which might favor the corporate finance emphasis on things other than the most profit, the most return to stockholders? Yeah, the chamber has you know a breadth of members who increasingly are taking action on climate change, disclosing their emissions, setting targets out into the future. But one of the challenges is when agencies uh, jump into a space where either they haven't before or there are questions about the statutory authority for them to do it, it, it certainly raises questions and gets to cost-benefit analysis is certainly one tool, again, uh, that agencies can use to provide feedback on the impacts of their policies. So what will the chamber, what will industry do to, if you oppose this, to try to mitigate it or stop it, if anything? Well, that's certainly a good question. We hope to engage the administration. We'll certainly be submitting comments and trying to get in to talk to the White House Office of Management and Budget and any other parts of the government, in particular as it is implemented through various regulatory policies. Our request is they immediately withdraw the executive order and the guidance and stick with what has been in place for the last 40 years. 
And would you ask, say, Congress to intervene? I mean, they're kind of write the laws that give way to regulation because that's the way the system basically works. But there has been occasional congressional intervention in rulemaking. Yeah, we have certainly supported bills on the Hill that would push for more cost-benefit analysis and regulations and the requirement that they are considered. So we'll certainly be working with Hill folks on, uh, you know, anyone that wants to work with us on any side to hear out stakeholder community issues on something this big. Chad Whiteman is Vice President of Environment and Regulatory Affairs at the Chamber of Commerce. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Nice to be here highlighting this important issue that could have broad impacts on the business community, the public, and a regulatory policy going down the road. We'll post this interview plus a link to the Chamber's point of view at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty. 
to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.